0: Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast.
1: Our episode today contains a number of legal terms. The definition for these terms and links to resources can be found in our episode description. Hi, I'm Jenny. I'm with Fiona today and we have Isaac with us. Isaac is a lawyer in the Community Law Program. During law school, Isaac volunteered extensively with the Law Students Legal Advice Program, providing legal representation and advice to low-income and vulnerable individuals. Isaac completed his articles with CLASS in May of 2018 and has worked with the Mental Health Law Program and the Human Rights Clinic before joining the Community Law Program in 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today, Isaac. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. We always
0: like to start off our episodes with a small icebreaker question. So, But Isaac, what is one of your favorite podcasts and why?
2: Favorite? I think my favorite, I have to say... Uh, I have to say, Stuff You Should Know is probably my all-time favorite podcast. It's it's really just sort of these these two guys who do, they pick a topic and they both do internet research and then they get together and I, seeming, I, as far as I can tell, basically just in one take, uh, both talk about what they've found about, about the topic. So it's a lot of, <laughs> very, it's very light, it's very digestible. Uh, yeah. I think it's probably been listening to that podcast for seven or eight years now. It's been going forever. Uh, It's one of the, it's consistently one of the top podcasts on.
0: So that was a great icebreaker question in my opinion. Um, Definitely learned something new. So uh, another podcast for us to check out in addition to faculty.
1: We would love to ask you a little bit about yourself. So can you tell us about yourself and what brought you into the legal profession?
2: Sure. So I, uh, I went to law school basically right after I completed my undergrad. Uh, I did uh, a political science degree. Writing was kind of one of, had always been one of my strengths. I was interested in the subject matter. So I went into that degree sort of thinking that I was going to try and be an academic. As I went through you know a couple of years of the program, I, it started to feel sort of like academia was a little bit more abstract than what I wanted to be doing i wanted to be really kind of involved in you know the the real issues with, with actual people and so i did um i did a thesis program in my final year of my undergrad that i enjoyed but it really kind of reinforced this idea that that really wasn't the path i wanted to go down so, I went to uh, UBC for my law degree, uh, I started doing uh, the Law Students Legal Advice Program, uh, which is basically sort of a poverty law clinic uh, run out of, out of the law school there, um, and that was a really good fit for me pretty much right away. That was sort of what I wanted to be doing and that ended up being a, a pretty good fit for um, where, where I am now at Klons.
1: Nice. That's nice to hear. Can I also ask you like a follow-up question? What were your favorite law classes that you took at UBC? I'm just so curious.
2: Favorite law classes. I feel like intuitively I want to see the one, say the ones I got the best grades in.
1: <laughs> um, Please tell us.
2: I, I uh, quite liked employment law. That one really stuck out for me. Um, one of the benefits of doing LSLAB work at the same time as school was I had a couple actual employment law files going on as I was doing the class so it was like I had this really great advantage of being able to take things from the class that I had learned and apply them to my work and vice versa and really sort of feel like I had a, a pretty solid understanding of the material just I tend to learn by by doing I think that for me that's what works best so uh, that was a that was a good class um I did a, a seminar in privacy law that was really interesting I think think those are the two that that stand out for me mm-hmm.
1: did you ever th- did you ever think that you also wanted to try solicitor work or
2: I I mean I don't know that I would say I'm I've ever kind of considered myself opposed to it but low-income people don't tend to be doing complex real estate transactions or incorporating financial entities so it's not something that I've ever really had to, to deal with uh thus far maybe sometime down the future it'll it'll come to me but um yeah, litigation has sort of always been what's been front and center for me basically since I started uh, started working in the clinic at school and now uh, my, my career, my practice thus far has almost been entirely uh, litigation based.
1: So you said that you articled uh, at CLASS. Could you tell mm. us a little bit about CLASS and what its missions and, and values are?
2: Yeah, so CLASS is sort of, it's the Community Legal Assistance Society. It's based here in, in Vancouver. It's sort of an umbrella organization with a number of um, programs within that, uh, based sort of generally in the areas of mental health law, human rights, uh, workers' rights, and tenancy work. Uh, there's a new program that was just added Um I guess a couple of years ago now, um, which is a SHARP program, which deals with sexual harassment in the workplace. So there are sort of the the core programs. There is a community law program, which is a program that I work in, um, which is sort of an administrative law uh, slash systemic law practice. Uh, We do mostly Supreme Court work, mostly judicial review work, uh, largely in the area of residential tenancy, but also, some work in the workers' compensation area, uh, a little bit of, you know, some mental health projects as well. There's also the Human Rights Clinic, which is where I started my career with CLASS, uh, which is basically entirely complaint inside uh, human rights litigation. There's the Mental Health Law Program, which does representation services for people who are either detained under the Mental Health Act or on conditions pursuant to the criminal code provisions uh, around uh, and CRMD findings. There's Sharp, which I talked about a little bit already. Uh, there's a couple other smaller programs. I always feel bad; like I don't quite ever get everybody completely when I describe class. But um, those are, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the the core the core programs. Uh, at our office.
0: That's wonderful to hear that class is involved in so many different initiatives. Um, So that actually leads me to my next question. We were wondering like what made you choose class and public interest over private practice? And I guess maybe in your answer, if you could talk about why you specifically chose your community law program uh, over other aspects, um, we would love to hear about that.
2: Yeah, I, I think in, on some level, I feel, you know, I feel really fortunate to be where I am. I think, you know, a lot more people would choose this with this path if there were more positions available. Certainly, you know, coming out of LSLAp, I, I sort of I had that intuitive sense of this was the kind of work I wanted to be doing. This was the sort of clientele I wanted to be serving in the areas of law I was interested in. And uh, class was a really good fit for those things. Uh, I actually came into contact with a couple class lawyers through LSLAp um who were very nice very you know interesting smart people and so it just sort of seemed like a, a really good place to be i applied for the articling position uh, through the sort of uh, on- on-campus interview process uh, was incredibly fortunate to be selected in uh, you know a competitive process which you know it continues to be competitive today so uh <laughs> it's almost like it's I feel like kind of almost weird saying that I chose this path when really you know I feel like I was chosen to, to do it and it feels you know very very fortunate to to be where I am today so and, you know there's there's nothing wrong with private practice either that uh, probably is where I would have uh, where I would have ended up if uh, if not here
0: It definitely is an interesting career path and we would love mm-hmm. to hear you talk more about it so yeah like after after you decided to join class, we are sure that you have been involved with a number of different initiatives at class. And one of the ones that we noticed in our research that we did prior to this interview was that class is actually involved in a lot of law reform initiatives. So mm-hmm. to the extent that you can, um, are you able to tell us a little bit more about the different reform initiatives that class is involved in?
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, we're sort of in three or four primary realms of, of uh, law, re- uh, law reform initiatives. Uh, We do a lot of work in Social Security and and workers' rights generally. Those are efforts to make benefits available in a way that's equitable and accessible. Uh, You know, so this is things like uh, income assistance, workers' compensation benefits. Um, There's been some fairly substantial changes to those things, especially in in the pandemic era there's been these pretty significant expansion of uh, unemployment benefits or you know however you want to describe them so there's there's that piece of it the human rights clinic at class also does a substantial amount of human rights advocacy in workplace related cases that where a lot of uh, human rights issues come up so that's sort of one area there we also do a lot of work in in housing uh, The housing is actually driven primarily by two lawyers at my office, uh, Danielle Sabelli and Holly Papenia. They both do uh, fantastic work in this area. There's a couple of different projects. The general focus is sort of preserving and expanding protection for low and modest income renters under the Residential Tenancy Act, under the Manufactured Home Park uh, Tenancy Act, uh, just to sort of make sure that those, those protections are, are there and, and remain robust for renters. One big issue that sort of at the f- at the front of the focus right now concerns the time frame that renters who are ordered to vacate by the RTB um, are given. So that tends to be in most cases uh, forty eight hours. Uh, there's nothing in the act that actually requires that timeline be that short. The arbitrators just seem to have a tendency to to make orders on that time frame, despite you know what's in my in my opinion a fairly clear. Risk of pushing somebody into either homelessness or precarious housing, uh, you know that's just sort of what happens when you give a low-income person two days to to move out of their out of their home and, and find a new place to live. I mean, I'm a you know, I'm a professional in a dual-income household, and I don't think I could find new rental accommodation on on 48 hours' notice. Um, so there's you know we've had a lot of interest in in that in sort of figuring out if there's a solution for that. Um, for that practice beyond housing, we also do uh, some mental health work. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's another program at class, uh, the mental health law program, that does representation services in that in those areas. We do some work as well with individuals who are detained under what's called the Adult Guardianship Act, which, among a number of other things, grants some fairly substantial powers. Uh, to various agencies over people who are abused and neglected uh, and unable to seek help for themselves in 2019 a class lawyer actually won a charter case uh, regarding the use of emergency powers under the AGA uh, which was found to be a breach of the patients charters rights in that particular cl- uh, case so uh, we do a lot of different a lot of different things at class both on the ground representation work and uh, these, you know, higher level systemic, uh, sy- systemic objectives as well.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, they all sound very interesting, and it's clear that classes is, is involved in a number of different initiatives. Um, with the housing issue, especially, I know that with COVID, it has mm-hmm. definitely driven a lot more people towards uh, homelessness. Our BC government, um, I know they've implemented a number of measures to address this issue we've had the bc temporary rental supplement program um, i know that the government has put a temporary hold on um, evictions i believe and and maybe rent increases in the in the meantime um, so yeah it's important that the government and organizations such as class uh, are involved in working on initiatives such as this and so it leads to my next question um, what is a recent interesting file that you've worked on again to the extent that you can talk about it uh, that uh, that has been concerning access to justice or one of the law reform initiatives that you just mentioned?
2: I was in court a week or two ago uh, with a colleague seeking uh, intervener status on an existing Adult Guardianship Act case. Uh, intervener status is when you are essentially, you're not a, you're not a party to the live dispute uh, at issue in the case, but you are essentially seeking to have some opportunity, you know, fairly limited opportunity to make submissions to the court about you know about the situation, and you know in our case about what the the broader implications of a decision might be. So that was you know that was interesting. That was a really good experience uh, to to sort of go and give that a shot. We uh, don't have the don't have the result back yet.
0: Wow, that's super interesting. So, um, Faculty BC, one of our missions actually for the near future is that we do hope to be uh more of an intervener and take more of an active approach in terms of our advocacy efforts um our chapter out east of faculty ontario they've been a bit more established they've been around longer and they have intervened in a number of cases and so that's something that faculty BC hopes to uh follow in the near future and so maybe i was wondering if you could give us a little bit more detail about uh, what it's like and how, how the process is like to seek intervener status. So just now you mentioned mm-hmm. that you have to wait to hear back. So maybe if you could just give us an estimate uh, and just what the timeline is typically.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it probably is going to vary a little bit depending on what the underlying, um, what the underlying cases, because, you know, the, the procedures and the rules that apply might be slightly different depending on uh, what's actually happening in the, in the substantive, uh, The substantive case itself, we, I think our approach was to keep the case fairly kind of like low to the ground and and quick and efficient, you know, the courts, the, the idea with an intervener, you you really kind of have to thread the needle a bit because you're not supposed to show up and talk about the merits of the case, but you're also not supposed to uh, expand the case, you know, outside of the scope of what it's about. So you, have, you, you really kind of have to occupy a pretty narrow uh, area of uh, bringing forward, you know, in our case, you know, we have some particular expertise and knowledge coming, coming from, you know, a place of being an organization that does, you know, probably more mental health representation than anybody else in the province, uh, at least in terms of, you know, at the, being at the, the mental health review board and review panel uh, hearings so we felt we had a, a particular perspective to to bring forward but yeah we we tried to keep it pretty pretty brief the court doesn't want to have a lot of time used up by by these types of applications and by the interveners themselves uh, so you know we tried to keep it make it so that our our involvement in the case uh, if it is uh, permitted Um, it would be not, uh, you know, not to slow down the case or cause any sort of uh, logistical problems in in any way.
0: Definitely, because, you know, to do that would run contrary to the whole point of um, access to justice. And so Mm -hmm. uh, for those who are are listening um, who may not be familiar, uh, I think access to justice is one of the biggest issues that is currently Um, because that is currently present in our legal system especially in BC Um, for anyone who is in litigation it is very clear that uh, litigants often have trouble uh, finding like a court time, um, same with litigators, you know, it's just, it's just a lot of logistics, a lot of moving parts to always, you know, find a date for trial and then, you know, the time and expense involved to have people staffed on the file. Um, and, you know, if there's any type of adjournment, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a lot of different uh, components when it comes to um, having access to a court and you know having access to a judge and and even just access to counsel and so that creates a number of problems. But that being said, the Canadian legal system. Um, I think we're uh, positioned in a fortunate manner where we are able to have organizations such as class and hopefully faculty will be seen in the future where we can seek intervener status and be part of a case in a different way. And so I guess my follow up question is off the top of my head, are there any organizations that Class works with or that you would uh, say has a similar mandate and that you would recommend that our listeners maybe check out after the end of today's episode?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, this is another one where I, I don't want to leave anybody out, but, you know, inevitably I'm going to. Um, there's so West Coast LEAF does a ton of, um, you know, really important work, uh, inter- you know, both as interveners and then. In, doing their own litigation. Uh, BC Civil Civil Liberties Association, I believe, does a fair bit of intervener work as well. Um, There's a new organization called Health Justice. Uh, I don't know if they've intervened in anything yet or if that's their intention, but they do um, important advocacy work as well. Uh, Pivot, obviously, has been around for a long time. They're another big player. That's that's everybody I can think of. I'm sorry if I if I missed you part of another organization who's out there. (laughs)
0: no worries but yeah like I mean it's obviously we're happy to hear that there are tons of organizations in the lower mainland who partake in these initiatives and yeah uh, just from among your list that you just mentioned actually we had the we had the privilege to interview uh, Raji Mangat who is the executive director of West Coast Leaf and so Mm. those of you who are listening that was our second episode so after you listen to this like feel free to head over to that Um, but yeah those are my questions for now now I will turn it over to Jenny. Uh,
1: So we're talking about access to justice so we want to pose a question to you and then see if you can give us some advice a recent survey in ontario found that most law students are in debt after they graduate and they Uh, generally or typically owe around $83,000 in their final year of law school. And many finance their studies through a combination of like government loans and grants or line of credits from banks. And typically, uh, thinking about how you do owe quite a lot of money when you graduate, students tend to try to take higher paying jobs in urban cities. And The clumping of lawyers in these cities means that there's less resources or less uh, students who graduate and seek jobs in smaller communities that may have other legal issues. Uh, This contributes to the country's access to justice crisis. Uh, What are ways that you think we can address this issue as a country?
2: I think there are maybe a couple different issues that are sort of interrelated in, in this situation. I mean, obviously, affordability of law school, I think, is an important um, an important consideration. I mean, when, when people are graduating with with that level of debt, uh, I, I think it does discourage uh, people from, you know, less fortunate financial backgrounds or just, you know, whatever their circumstances are where they can't, uh, you know, they can't take that on financially. And, you know, that might be, you know, we could be losing out on uh, some, you know, really exceptional lawyers uh, just because of the the financial barriers. And obviously that's uh that's not good for for us as a country. Uh, You know, the obvious solution is to make more grants available in some way. Um, But yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have an easy answer for that one. I think you know, the issue of there being this shortage of lawyers outside of the urban environments is is an interesting one. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's really worth it for new lawyers to consider, you know, new lawyers and articling students uh, to consider expanding their search Beyond the big cities, uh, that was actually something that I was really actively considering before I uh, secured my articles with with Class. I, you know, I think it's perfectly possible. In fact, I know it's perfectly possible to have a good career in a smaller town. Some of those smaller towns, you know, the price of price of real estate, cost of living is is lower. So, you know, I know people who have who have done that have gone out uh, outside of the Lower Mainland and have great careers already, and they're only a, a couple of years in. And, you know, taking advantage of that lower cost of living and, you know, have a, have, a great, uh, have a great setup and they're really set up well, you know, going forward for the future. So I think, you know, there's, there's a combination of, um, you know, maybe the, you know, the difficulty affording law school, but also this, you know, conception about smaller, you know, smaller towns, smaller cities, not being a place where you can go and, and have a career. And I, you know, and I really don't think that's true.
0: I think that you make a really good point about the need for students to consider not only practicing law um, outside of Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, but also uh, consider maybe going to school in areas that are maybe outside of for example UBC and UVic and so I think that is one of the reasons why the government decided to establish TRU, Thompson Rivers University up Mm -hmm. in Catlips and I know in Ontario we uh there's obviously a number of different schools I think there's eight now with uh, Ryerson University recently opening but um yeah there's a there's a school in Thunder Bay uh, at Lakehead University and I think it was established for a very similar reason. Um, and, you know, just as an aside, I'm also on the Canadian Bar Association National Law Students section and one of the committees actually is to focus on establishing a loan forgiveness program. Um, because I think in other programs and other professional programs such as medical school, uh, you know, med students who choose to practice in a rural re- region are able to have some of their uh, student debt written off in a way, but as as of my current knowledge, I don't think that a similar program exists for law students. And so, you know, that's kind of been some of the work that CBA has been doing behind the scenes as well. Um, they've been trying to push for uh, push for the law, um, the legal profession to, um, to implement a similar program. And so I think these are all very good points that you make, and I think it is definitely important in working towards the access to justice um, reform. Uh,
2: Sure, yeah, for
1: sure. And I wanted to add that for for our listeners who are uh, potentially uh, considering law school, there are, Canada, we have a number of law schools and for example, Um, Fiona and I went to different law schools and I went to a law school I went to Western, which is Ontario, and the tuition is higher than if you chose to go to, for example, UVic where Fiona went. And and so like that's a consideration to also think about, you know, your finances doing financial planning, where do you want to end up and which law school you pick and it kind of fits into like when you graduate where you can choose uh, where you can choose to work as well.
0: Yeah, so on that point, I actually did my first year at Windsor, and then I transferred to UVic and, you know, I didn't realize until I arrived uh, back in BC that my tuition had been cut in half, uh, thanks to current rules where our tuition is capped.
1: So we'd love to ask you uh, some questions about tips for the legal professionals um, in terms of representation. As of now, law is still an overwhelmingly white and male profession what are some general tips that you have for racialized individuals in the legal profession?
2: Um, I have a mixed uh, ethnicity background so um, you know my I have Asian heritage on my dad's side and I have North American on my uh, on my mother's side so you know I I don't want to rail against the the white males too much when some people would say you know I'm arguably kind of one of them but you know I think um especially as a young lawyer it it can be a really common experience to sort of not be taken seriously either by clients or by you know opposing counsel Uh, and i think you know to me uh, there are a couple things that are important to do as much as you can to really kind of counteract that which is you know i think the first thing is just work you know work hard try and develop that self-confidence that comes from really knowing your area of law, and really having thought carefully about your cases, uh, knowing your stuff can be a really sort of powerful tool to, to you know, counteract some of these discriminatory or, or prejudiced uh, perspectives that can be uh, levied against you. It's not necessarily fair to put all the burden on you. Sure, um, you know, definitely acknowledge that. But you know, my experience has been that you know, generally that can that can work, uh, you know, if you can establish your own credibility as a, as a professional, even if you're early on in your career, that can, uh, that can really help uh, in, in dealing with some of these issues. I think having, having a mentor or having a, you know, a network of mentors who are really invested in your, in your success and your well-being, uh, you know, that can be really crucial uh, because it's always helpful to have somebody to just discuss your experiences with you know, sometimes it's hard. It's hard to know when somebody has crossed the line with you, or whether you know, because we do. You know, we work in an, in an adversarial situation, and people are people are 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 tough, and it can be it can be hard to know what's okay and and what's not okay in the context of of that sort of really unique interpersonal situation. So I think having somebody to to talk with and and really kind of help you understand. Uh, where you're at um, in some of these situations is helpful, uh, and then having a support group, uh, you know, whether it's within your professional life or outside of it, is also um, I think a, a big thing uh, to sort of deal with. You know, the emotional, the, the, the it can be very difficult uh, emotionally. You know, whether in the, in the practice of law or dealing with, uh, you know, being being a racialized person. Uh, can be it can be stressful it can be you know anxiety inducing and so to the degree that you can find people that uh, you're comfortable with uh, leaning on for for that level of support I think that that can be a big help Um, so that's sort of what I would say you know I recognize that dealing with these issues as a racialized person it's it's not necessarily fair to put all of the burden on the person who is facing those kinds of, you know, behaviors and and barriers. But uh, that's just what, in the context of answering the question, that's what I think, um, you know, has has worked for me in the past. But obviously, you know, as a profession as a whole, you know, we all have a lot of work to do to to sort of deal with these issues and, and put a stop to, you know, people having these experiences.
1: Yeah, I really resonate with what you said about having like a mentor at work and also having a group of like support outside of your work. And I find that, you know, in in general, if there's anything happening, uh, you know, in the news or like outside, and I find that I, I, you know, connect with those issues, I I, like having somebody to discuss um, what's happening outside is really helpful. Like it helps me put into perspectives, helps me learn how to deal with what we're experiencing. And and so I, I would say that those are really great recommendations. Thank you
0: um and isaac i just want to say thank you for uh i guess raising your point earlier about how you come from a mixed um, background and so i actually want to dive a little deeper into that and just from my experience uh, interacting with some of our board members uh, at faculty bc we do have a few board members who are also of a mixed background and you know from time to time i do hear that informally they may talk about experiences that they have faced as a a, as a legal professional with a mixed background, and so I was wondering if you could maybe talk about whether you have faced uh, any type of experiences because of that, um, or you know if you feel like that has impacted your way of practice at all.
2: It's an interesting question. I mean, I do like you know my I have a I have a non-white last name. I think most people when they would see me, most people would identify me as you know being you know, a minority of, of, of some kind, people aren't always sure what, you know, where I'm from exactly. But uh, I think, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting experience being a, a person of, of mixed race. I feel like, you know, on some level, we, there's a tendency to kind of identify you by whatever's most salient about you. So, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I work at a very progressive, diverse organization. Um, so it's always, you know, I've always felt comfortable being who I am and so I don't know I mean I don't know that I would say I have made any real conscious decisions as as in my my professional life as a result of that background but you know it's something it's something to keep in mind always I think um, just to be you know aware about who you are and who other people think you are based on what you look
0: like.
1: Thanks for sharing with us.
0: And so that actually leads us to our closing question for you. We were wondering if you could share with us that what, like, what do you find rewarding about your work?
2: It, it can really vary from from case to case what you get out of it. I mean, there are some cases where, you know, the, there's always a there's always a big uh, a big stake for the client, right? I mean, I think one of the one of the most challenging things about law is that people don't generally go to a lawyer unless at least in, in, in the areas that I practice, they don't go to a lawyer unless something has gone really wrong um, and they're very upset about something. I mean, most, you know, most people who are low or modest income don't really have access to, to lawyers uh, you know, on, a regular, on a regular basis. So when, when you can get that resolution to a really important problem uh, in somebody's favor, um, that can be very, very gratifying. Uh, And you know, other times it's other times it's just the nature of the work, uh, and and coming up with either the right strategy where you feel like you've really sort of sorted out what what was the best way to navigate your client through you know a complex situation, or just coming to a conclusion on uh, you know an understanding of a point of law that's difficult. I do you know I'm I'm in fairly new into an administrative law practice uh, in. Maybe the most challenging province in the country to do administrative law you know in in my opinion so sometimes sometimes uh it can be really gratifying to to feel like you've just sort of figured out how the law works in general because it's not you know it's not always intuitive it's sometimes it's very difficult so yeah it can be a lot of things uh, and I think that that's it's an important part of being happy in your practice and happy in your career is, is knowing what uh gives you that that sense of satisfaction and um, being in a place where where you can get that you know, fairly regularly.
0: Definitely. I think in our profession where we're, you know, we can be prone to a burnout and overwork and stress, I think it is very important that we always find passion um, in the work that we do and that we're driven by the motivation to help people. Um, I think at least for me personally, I can say that my desire to enter this profession was very much uh, motivated by my desire to help others. and so you know, very glad to hear that the work that you're doing right now is gratifying. Um, To close, you know, we talked about a lot of different topics today. We talked about access to justice, what it's like for class to, you know, seek intervener status on a file, um, Faculty BC's missions moving forward. Um, We've even touched on uh, different access to justice reform initiatives such as student loan and debt forgiveness, uh, things that the CBA is doing and so just want to say thank you Isaac uh, so much for joining us today we we took a lot away from our conversation um, even just having you share your personal experiences of coming from a mixed race just want to let our listeners know that we actually will have an upcoming episode discussing financial planning with DLD financial group so if you're interested in learning more about that stay tuned for one of our upcoming
1: episodes very lovely to meet you today and thank you so much for being on the podcast with us
2: yeah thank you for having me yeah (laughs) no it was that was a lot of fun thank you
1: thank
0: you for tuning into the FACUL BC podcast visit our website at facultbc.ca and follow us on Facebook Instagram and LinkedIn at FACULBC we hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest if you have guest speaker suggestions
1: please email us at membership at facultbc.ca.